hearts, God. You are so great. You are so great, and we praise your name tonight as we think about all that you've done for us, all that you've accomplished for us, Lord. We're so grateful. Grateful for your love, grateful for your breath, especially as we think about tonight, your very breath, the breath of life inside us, your very life-giving spirit that resides in us so that we too might live. God, would you please be present tonight by that very same spirit that gave us life. We see you tonight, will we hear you tonight, will we think about you tonight, God. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, week two of Genesis. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, we did Genesis 1. So, uh, you can see here on the screen, the, the, the title of the series is A Land, A Seed, of Blessing. And I've said these are going to be the three things that really form the content of Genesis. So what are these three things that humanity needs, that it that it desires, that it's really crafted for, are these three things. A land, a seed, and a blessing. Uh, this week, it's been a hard week for me. I've had a, a, a rough week. And so I'll just tell you now, uh, what I'm about to say probably will sound pretty unpastoral. Mm. Um, but I've found that the most pastoral thing you can do is be honest about where you're at. And this last week, I, I just, I feel like I'm fairly self-aware, and I, I've just felt a turn in my heart. And I'm not saying this about some specific person, per se, I'm just saying people in general, um, humanity. I've felt a turn in my heart where I just feel a sense of hatred towards people. And maybe it's the political climate, maybe it's... Uh, the reality of the world and how despicable and awful and evil and, and hateful it is. Uh, but I felt that in my heart this last week. And so I've prayed. I've prayed for God to give me an answer about that. Uh, the definitive reality of Christianity, of course, is love, isn't it? And I've just been filled with this kind of cynicism and skepticism of people as a whole and, and what we are. And I feel like the Lord gave me, um, I think he's given me four answers, really, in different ways, different pieces to that puzzle, as I've, I've prayed and thought about it. I'll give you three now, and I'll give you one at the end. Uh, you want to keep suspense as a pastor, right? So <laughs> hold, on, hold on to one for the end. Uh. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I think there are three different experiences I've had this week, as I've had that revelation about myself as I've looked inward. Um, one is, this is going to sound random, but I was watching the Last Dance documentary this, uh, this last week. I don't know if you've heard of it. It basically could be called Michael Jordan, the documentary. It's about the dominant era of the Chicago Bulls in the 90s when they won, you know, two, uh, three peats. They, they went back to back to back and then had a year off and went back to back to back. And, and the whole documentary is focused around their team and how dominant they were. And as I watched it, I was like, man... It's like I said, it's basically Michael Jordan, the documentary. I'm like, this guy is so unbelievably arrogant, just like despicably arrogant. And he's kind of a bully to everyone. And like, he's the most venerated, one of the most venerated sports figures we've ever had in American history. And I'm like, this guy, like, he just some of the stuff he says is like despicable to me. 
And about, uh, I think it was three quarters of the way through, I was watching it, and then it talks about something. You'll have to understand about me. Uh, yes, I am a man, but I didn't care about sports till I was about 30 years old. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, underst- I knew who my- Michael Jordan was, but I didn't really know his story. And about three quarters of the way through the documentary, it talks about his father being murdered. And a total random uh, kind of coincidence, his father was driving down the road and, and took a, pulled off to take a nap, and then he's murdered. And um, that changed my whole perspective on it in that moment. Because I was reminded the definitive thing for humanity, the thing that we all have experienced is suffering. And it doesn't matter how awful a person you are, it doesn't matter how evil you may be, there's this connection we all have because humanity we all suffer that's a connecting point and it really humanized him for me it reminded me we all have that experience we all have that reality and it does connect us and it reminded me of the compassion i need to have the second was this uh, you know this week um we've been trying to figure out how we're going to buy this house we're in now we've been renting for the last almost two years now july will be two years and um, we tried to get a loan, and we, we've never been particularly financially well off uh, in the 10 years of our marriage. But uh, we were like, let's see if we can figure this out. And so we tried to uh, call up a, a loan officer and figure some of these things out. And we're, we're, we're off from what we would need to buy this house to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And um, I was devastated. I really, I was devastated by that. Uh, not that I expected any different, but just that um, this home has been such a godsend for us to be here near mom and mom and dad and be able to do church here and be right down the street and how precious it's been for my kids. And uh, so like I said, I, I tend to take things harder than anyone else in the family. That tends to be my way. Um, so I was I was crying about it. And uh, I was, you know, kind of weeping about it. And Monique said, uh, maybe we should just have a good family cry. Let's just have a good family cry. And Gwen, uh, here's how she interprets that. She says, I've got to cry. I love the Lord. Amen. Yeah, that's my baby. That's Gwen's heart. And uh, it just reminded me of these kids and how much they've changed who I am, how much they've uh, shaped me into who I am. And those kids will be the thing that see me through this season, I know, because they remind me of the best in humanity. And the third was this. I, I have the preaching schedule for this, this series laid out to the end of the year, and I knew this week I'd be preaching Genesis 2. And I prayed. I said, God, if there's any chapter... That will remind me of the preciousness of humanity. It's Genesis 2. Speak to me this week. And that's the chapter we get to go through tonight. That I'm excited to go through with you. Let's go through it. Genesis 2. This week I've called the Garden Temple. And you'll see why. Genesis 2 opens uh, in verse 4 this way. We went through the first 
uh, three verses of Genesis 2 last week as the closing of the first account. So we're starting in, in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now if you remember, we saw last week kind of the more overview, like Shirley was talking about, this overview of the passage of God creating everything. And now as Genesis 2, we come into this really intimate portrait of God creating humanity. It's not concerned with let there be light or let there be a, an expanse in, that separates the waters from the waters. We're now moving into this intimate portrait that's focused on the sixth day. What is the creation of man? And that's where God's going to uh, focus his attention right now as we read Genesis 2. Okay, it says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. This is talking about an underwater stream, which is interesting. Mist is an interesting translation. But this idea is an underground stream that waters the land. It, it pulls water out, a, a spring almost, that would water the land. But what's the problem? There's no one to actually make use of it. There's no way to irrigate it. There's no way to make the plants grow. And so what's going to do that? Well, it already alludes to it, right? There's got to be a man to cultivate it. This is land that is well watered. It will be taken care of. But nothing has, has happened because the ground has not been worked. The ground has not been worked. So the Lord God, what did he do? He formed man out of the dust from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We talked about this when we talked about spiritual warfare. What are the elements that make up a human? What, uh, anthropologically, in, in terms of theology, what makes a person? And we talked about this dust from the ground and the breath of life, right? There is a material and an immaterial component to humans. There is the physical, there's this body that we have, and there's also an immaterial piece, what you might call soul or spirit, uh, whatever term you want to use to think of that. But we think of this immaterial part. It's, it's our mind, our will, our cognition, our, our, our soul, if you will. Now, Bible uses this word here in living being. That's the word living soul. And the typical Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. And it uses it there. It's a living soul. And we'll talk more about that. In this passage, in Genesis 2, uh, what do we is, human, is humanity unique here? Is this a unique phenomenon to humanity? Interestingly, no, it's not. It's not. Here, dust from the ground and breath of life describes anything that is living. It's used of the fish and the birds. It's used of the living animals. And we'll see that later on in the passage. I'll point it out to you. But what you'll hear here is that this is about man becoming alive. Right? It, it, it's actually the same language when this dust from the ground, you'll see it later on in the passage. But that breath of life, remember during the flood, when God's going to flood the world, what does he say about the flood? It will kill everything in which is the breath of life. He's not talking about uh, just humans. He's talking about all living things. Right? He uses that same language because 
The animals, too, are dust from the ground and breath of life. What is it that makes humans unique? What is it that makes humans unique? It's not in this passage. What is it, Mom? Image of God. It's image of God. I read that today. Image of God. Genesis 1 is the uniqueness of humanity. We are dust from the ground and breath of life, just like all the animals, and yet we are unique. We have a strong connection. We are like them, and yet we are unique because we are the image of God. We walk as the representation of God on the earth. So, the Lord God, what does he do when he makes this living creature, this man? What's he do? He plants a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he formed. It's interesting because obviously the scene is taking place outside of this garden, right? If you think about it. He's made man, and then he takes man and places him in this garden he made. Now, if you look... Towards the east, what's that referring to? Well, it probably assumes that whoever the narrator, the author is, is in Israel. The land of Israel. The promised land. And they're writing that it's toward the east. And when we have this identification of rivers, most likely it's somewhere in Arabia or the Persian Gulf that this location is meant to be located, right? When we think about rivers that we do know about. The Tigris, the Euphrates. Rivers we've heard of even to today. Famous rivers. So it's somewhere in Mesopotamia that this is happening. But the author speaks, hell, it's towards the east, because they're speaking from Israel, the land of of the people of God. So this man is placed there. Do you remember what I said the the Hebrew for the word man is, by the way, last week? What's the Hebrew word for man? It's Adam. Yeah, Adam. So if you see man in these early accounts, that's just translating Adam. It's hard to know whether he's talking about man, the species, or or a personal name for this specific being. It kind of roves back and forth between those two pieces, right? So he placed Adam, whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those are going to become important real soon, aren't they? We'll talk more about that next week. But we know that the Lord has made this beautiful place, this land, Eden, this garden, so that humans will live in delight and pleasure, that they will live a full life, and that it will be good, that it will be enjoyable, right? Most likely Eden itself, the word Eden probably means a delight or a pleasure. Right? So they live in this wonderful place that the Lord has made that's perfect for them. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there this river divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Four rivers. Like I said, this probably locates it somewhere in the Persian Gulf area. Not that I think we could ever find it anyway, even if we tried. But what it's saying here is, is interesting because it's something we don't understand when we just read it. 
Okay, it's making a point. And this seems like such a weird, it's such a weird intrusion into the story, doesn't it? Like, what does this add to the narrative? What is this trying to tell us? Is why this random, like, geographical river tributary thing? Because it's speaking to something that the readers of it would understand. Now, if you remember back to the introduction I gave in Genesis, one of the things I said that's definitive for Genesis is that the Exodus has already taken place during the writing of these things. The people of Israel read the stories of Genesis and understand themselves in relation to it. Three things you'll notice here. Gold, bdellium, and onyx. These three terms. I'm going to give you some, some ideas, and, and maybe you'll be skeptical at first, but I hope by the end of it you'll see that it's, I, it's in my opinion, it's definitive for what this is trying to say. Gold is pretty uh, pretty common word, right? It's, it's kind of everywhere. So this doesn't add much to the weight, but I think it's important to mention. What is made of gold? Everything in the tabernacle. Everything in the ta tabernacle is overlaid with pure gold. It's to be made of pure gold. Make a pure golden lampstand and golden censers and golden, uh, you know, golden trim all the way around. Everything's decked out in gold. But again, gold's pretty common. But what's not so common is bdellium. Bdellium only shows up one other time in Scripture. It shows up in Numbers 11. And what's it in reference to? It's in reference to manna. Manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bdellium. It looked like this substance. What's that significant? Where was manna stored? In the ark. This is tabernacle language. What was the last one? It was onyx stone. The Hebrew word for onyx stone, it shows up in several places. But significantly in the Pentateuch, what is onyx used for? on the high priestly garments. Two onyx stones are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel and put on the ephod, the breastplate piece of the high priest, so that the names of the sons of Israel would always stand before the Lord when he entered the holy space. Right? That's what onyx was used for. See, these are giving indications about something they already understood. This land of Eden was full of all the things that you need for the tabernacle. It's full of all the things you needed for what? For the place where God met man. So the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Okay, if all of that was not convincing, this is the key point. <clears throat> Cultivate and keep. Those two words, work and keep. Work and guard. They're two significant words in Hebrew. The words are avad, which means work, and shamar, which means to keep or guard. They show up here in unison, work it and keep it. They also show up elsewhere in the Pentateuch, and it's specifically in Numbers 3 where they show up connected to each other. In what way? The Lord spoke 
to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the temple. These words are avad and shamar. To keep or guard the duties, to do the service, which is avad as a noun, the noun form of that word, to keep all the furnishings and to do service, avad as a noun again. Avad and shamar are exclusively used in the Pentateuch to talk about the duties of priests. This is priestly language that's being used of Adam. What is the point? Eden is the tabernacle. Eden is the tabernacle. It is the sanctuary of God. It's the place where God goes to dwell with man. This language is important. This language is important because it is a theme, it is a thread that weaves throughout the entire Bible. Remember I told you uh, either last week or two weeks ago what I said the main theme of the Bible is. The main theme of the Bible is I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. This is I will dwell among you. This is I will dwell among you language. Eden as a garden is the holy space where God dwells among men. And so when you get to the tabernacle... That's the space where God dwells among men, and they make it with the elements that we're talking about here in Genesis 2. Gold, bdellium, onyx. It's where they work and keep, just like Adam did in the previous sanctuary. It's decorated with what? Fruits and trees. The menorah, what does it look like? It's the tree of life. The menorah represents the tree of life in the temple. It's all Eden language. It's all Eden language. Right? The Israelites of Moses' day, they would have seen this and they would have understood it as tabernacle language. There's one allusion. But if you go on, right, as time goes on, what becomes the place where God dwells later, after the tabernacle? A home for God is made and it's... temple. In Solomon's day, the Israelites would have understood this as temple language. What do Christians understand it as? Have you read the end of Revelation? Christians understand it as New Jerusalem language. And the the trees of life line the river and their leaves are for the healing of the nations. And there is no temple. Why? Because the Lamb and the, the Ancient of Days are the temple. They are the light of the city. This is language that runs all the way from Genesis 2 to Revelation 22. This is throughout the entire thing. When you get to the temple in Ezekiel, the third temple that's going to be made, what's significant about the temple? A river flows from it. That's Eden language. That's Eden language. This is a theme that runs through the entire course of the Bible. 
What is New Jerusalem? It's a return to God dwelling with men. New Jerusalem is his sanctuary, just like Eden, where he dwells with man again. Significant. Right? This is where he wants his presence to be. Eden was where his presence was. And his presence is known in our land. This Eden becomes their land, right? We talked about those three elements. This is their land. And humanity was meant to do two things. They were meant to be royalty. They were meant to be royalty. That's represented by the ruling language that's used in Genesis 1, right? They were meant to be royalty. They were ruling in God's stead. They were meant to be his vice-regents or his co-regents, leading in his place. Right? That's humanity's role. And, as we saw in Genesis 2, they were meant to be priests, mediating God's presence to creation. Both. We were meant to be royalty and priests. That's what humanity was intended for. To rule over his creation in his stead and to mediate his presence to his creation. That's humanity. That is the lofty end that humans were called to. And of course, what's the tragedy? Well, we read Genesis 3. But here at Genesis 2, look at what we were called to be. Look at the glory of it. The majesty of it. What a wonderful, wonderful creation we are. To sit at the pinnacle of what he has made. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now this should stop us in our tracks. Why? It's the first time God said something isn't good. Everything throughout Genesis 1, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. This should stop us in our tracks because this is not good. It's not good that man's alone. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Remember earlier I talked about living soul, a living being. This is the same word right here, nefesh haya. It's the exact same word that was used about Adam. I think it's a poor translation to translate it living being earlier in living creature here. It's the same word. In Hebrew, it's the same word. And the point is what? There's a connection. That's why God brings these creatures to him to see if they're a suitable helper. There's a connection. They're all living souls. And the Lord brings the animals before the man to see if he can find a helper for him. And the tragedy is, he can't. There's no suitable helper. You'll look here. The man. There's your nefesh hayah right here. Sorry, excuse me. A living being, living creature. They're both nefesh hayah, living souls. Living souls. The man, it says that he calls these animals. He called them. 
and, and, and gives them names. What's that about? <clears throat> He's exercising authority over them. To name something is to give it uh, is to is to give yourself authority over it, right? And, and it makes sense too, because who did we see name things in Genesis one? God. This is part of Adam's ruling function over the creation, because he names the things. It shows authority over the thing named, right? Just like the Lord did it in chapter one. Now Adam does it here in chapter 2. He names it. He shows his authority over it. And the beautiful thing about it is that God just sits there and delights in what Adam does, doesn't he? It says, if you look at, look at the language of it, the Lord is bringing these creatures to Adam because he's just enthralled with Adam, seeing them, meeting them, naming them. The Lord is, is trying to do good for Adam, to provide for him. They bring him a helper that's suitable but he also delights in seeing what Adam calls each thing. It's, it's a beautiful moment of God enjoying his creation. He delights in Adam. He delights in man. So what happens? There's no helper. There's no helper. What a tragedy. So the Lord does something to provide again. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept and then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's a beautiful passage here. Adam says this, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Interestingly, we see that at other places in the Old Testament, don't we? <clears throat> Laban, when he meets Jacob, Laban, when he meets Jacob, Jacob comes to, to, to Laban to flee from Esau's wrath. And when he meets him, Laban says, bone, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What's he saying? He's kin. He's of his people, their family. That's what Adam says here. This is an interesting phrase, this whole passage right here, this whole uh, verse where he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's so interesting because I think it puts all of us in our place, men and women. It puts us all in our place. Because what's he saying here? He's saying, this is my flesh. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's become my family. We don't tend to think in these terms because of, of the way of modern society. But in these ancient cultures, it's like, it's like brother and sister. They're, they're related. They're inextricable. This bond is something that is so deep that the marriage bond makes them truly family. They become the, the daughter-in-law daughter of the father-in-law becomes a true daughter. Right? There's a real deep family connection with this language and how it's used throughout the rest of the scripture. Adam says to this, this new creature before him, he says, you're family. And that's a corrective. That's a corrective for many men. 
who view a, a wife or a woman as something that they can dominate, something that they can, that they can uh, trample down. No. No, she's family. She is un- she's inseparable from you. She's wonderful. She's your equal. Remember when we read last in Genesis 1. In the image of God, he created him. They were created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Right? Unity and diversity. They're equals before God. They are connected and they are equal bearers of the image of God. So there's no place for a man to say, you, you are less than me. You are beneath me. And yet, and yet, I think it has something to say to women too. Because what does Adam do next? He calls her woman. What language is that? That's naming language. There is an authority that Adam places over his wife here by doing the very thing he did with the other creatures. He names her woman. There is a place that I don't think we can avoid in Scripture that man is the authority of the relationship. I don't know how that, I mean, maybe that strikes you wrong, but I don't know what else to say. That's what the Scriptures say. He actually names her twice. He names her first, as, as, a, as an individual species almost, if you will. Obviously, we're of, of the same species, but he names her woman as a class. And then he names her Eve. It actually says Adam called his wife's name Eve. That's what happens later in Genesis 3. Adam is exerting authority over her. We can't lose either of those pictures. There is an authority that the man has in a relationship. That is biblical and it's mentioned. And at the same time, there's no place for someone to view them as less than bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. United, connected, equal before God, equal bearers of the image. I think we all have something to learn learn from that. And of course here, this language, again, it speaks to the power of that relationship, doesn't it? Because this leaving the father and mother, this forsaking of them, and joining to the wife, what's that language of? That's actually covenant language. This is the language of covenant in the Bible. Forsaking and joining, or being, being stuck to, connected to, joined with. That's the language of covenant. It's proof that the Israelites would have viewed marriage as a covenant. This bond, this connection you make with a person, it's a covenant that you make with them. Just like the covenants that God makes with his people. So too, man and wife make a covenant. And it's interesting, isn't it? In a culture where literally the the ultimate human obligation you can have to another person is what? It's to your parents. That's that culture. We, we have no understanding of that culture as today, right? We just don't understand it. It's easy, the, the joining to the wife, because we, we're ready to do that. that. In our culture, that makes perfect sense to us. But this is a radical statement for their culture. 
Because the highest human obligation was to honor your parents. To respect your elders. To, to, to submit to them. And right here at the beginning of Genesis, it says the point of marriage, a man leaves his parents and is clung to, is stuck to, is joined together with his wife. A significant language for their culture. And lastly, this verse, the last verse we'll go over tonight. It's so beautiful, and yet it's so tragic to me at the same time. Because we know what's coming. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The power of that sentence is huge. What's it talking about? See, most people can only see, oh, is it about physical nakedness? Yes, it is. That's what it's talking about. But the reality is talking about is that they were in perfect community. There was no shame. They were not shaming one another. There was nothing about the man that the woman looked at and said, oh, you could do so much better. There was nothing about the woman where a man looked and said, oh, you just need to lose a couple pounds. There was no shame. Perfect community. Perfect community. And the fourth thing, the fourth thing that happened, that God spoke to me, was because of this verse right here. And I remembered I was going to make it through this season because I have been bare before another human and been unashamed. I remember my wife person whom I have spiritually been naked before. Obviously physically too. But that's not the point, right? That's not the point. The point is I have experienced that reality of being spiritually bare before. Of literally bearing my soul and having someone look at me and not shame me for it. I've experienced that. And I'm going to make it through because my wife is a wonderful woman who can look at me and not shame me. Look at my naked condition that so many people, if they were to see, would just, oh, that's despicable. My wife can look at and, and give me no shame. So tonight, if, if you're married, remember the value of that. If you're in here and you're married, remember the value of that. You have a person in which you can offer that, in which they can offer that in return. That's a significant. That's what God wanted for us. He intended that for us. Perfect community, no shame. And for those of you who aren't married in this room tonight, there's a beautiful passage in the New Testament that really hits this home for us, which is this. Paul says, the mystery of the marriage of a man and a woman is what? It's actually that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is not actually about man and woman. It's about Christ and his love for the church. 
now they relate. If you're single in here and you know Jesus, you believe in him, you have this relationship with Christ, as we all do. I'm not denying that, obviously. But in a unique, special way, as a single person, you have Jesus who can look at you in all your nakedness, all your barrenness, all your flaws, exactly as you are, and not shame you. That is powerful. That is powerful. Because the secret of marriage is not just man and woman. No, the true mystery of it is that it refers to Christ and the church. That's what the New Testament tells us. We have that beauty. We have that wonderful reality in Jesus. Because we can look to him and still live in this condition. Still live in a condition in which we are bare before him. Bare before our God. And he does not shame us. So tonight, I I hope you can cling to that. I hope you can cling to that the way I have. That humanity, as broken and as flawed and as much derision and, and hate as we may even deserve, we have a God who does not look at us like that. We have a God who created us to rule and be priests on this earth. We have a God who's willing to look at us in our broken, flawed, totally barren state and not shame us, but bring us into relationship. And you know, the other beauty of this, and it's important to notice, notice, it's important to remember, is that he gave us the church. That mystery of Christ and the church. Now, I'm a realist. (laughs) I recognize we're never going to be able to be barren Uh, the way that you might be with a spouse or with Jesus, with another person in the church. That's just reality of people. But we can try. We can try to offer our soul up to one another in a way that presents ourselves, uh, uh, in a way that shows some deep parts of ourselves, deep parts of ourselves that we may not even want to show. And the church, when it's doing its job right, can bring no shame upon that person. They can actually bring forgiveness and healing and hope and restoration to those things. I know I've lived it. That's the power of the church when it functions well. And so we have a a multitude of resources for our own shame and our own brokenness and our own guilt in that we can, in God's providence, we can have a spouse, we can have someone to, to bear ourselves before. We have him the ultimate hope, the ultimate person we can be barren before, who knows us better than we can know ourselves. And he's not ashamed of us. He is not ashamed of us. And the church, the church where we can hold each other up, lift each other up, pray for one another, bear each other's sins and burdens, it says. We can forgive each other. We can have grace for one another. We can be gentle and restore each other. That's a multitude of resources we have as Christians. And so tonight, I hope we remember that. I hope we take that to heart. And I know I will, as I work through this issue in my own heart, how thankful I am that I can stand up here and bear my soul to you. That 
I can bear that dark part in, in my heart. Someone who, all of you who have known me for a long time, you know that the key to what I've considered myself to be all my life is loving people. And I can admit that, hey, there's, there's dark moments. There's dark spots. But I want to love them. I want to love people. And I can submit that to you and know that you guys will love me and pray for me and I don't have to be ashamed. And so I, I, I submit that to you tonight. I do ask who you would pray for me, that I would love well, and that God would turn my heart back to the love uh, that I, I do have and that I want to have. So I hope that's an encouragement to you tonight. I hope as you think through your own uh, flaws and foibles and your own struggles, you remember the beauty of this passage. Human beings are worthwhile. They were created for a noble purpose. And God loves us. We too are called to love one another. To live in this reality, the reality that God intended for community. That's what he intended for community of people. Let me close in. Actually, you know what? I'm going to turn it over to Tyler. And I'll let Tyler do what he wants with prayer. But that's what I have for you tonight.